heresies and welcome to the desert of the real and welcome to this special show and sorry if i sound a little stuffed up got a bit of a cold uh recently took a uh, taxing but very rewarding uh, trip i was walking in memphis as the marcone song goes yes i went down to memphis to uh, uh do some research for the book and pay homage to the king, and it was truly amazing, fantastic, mystical at some points, especially when I went to the meditation garden and uh, stood in front of the grave of Elvis Presley. But I'll have more to come, because it was so full of insights and revelations, some that I will share and some that will make the book. Uh, It wasn't just to visit Elvis, although that was the central highlight, Uh, I also went to Sun Records to pay homage to Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis. I went to the place where Jeff Buckley drowned. Uh, I think it's Wolf Harbor Bay that goes into the Mississippi River. And then my friend Sean and Steven Snyder and I drove down to Mississippi and we went to Clarksdale to, yes, Pay homage to Robert Johnson and give the devil his dues. Both Robert Johnson and the devil do make an appearance in my Elvis book. They are important characters, as you will see. And that was, again, truly mystical, truly revelatory in experience and weight. So more to come. But anyway... I know uh, before I get too carried away on all the Elvis and Blues and Beale Street and all the amazing things I did that got me a little sick too, uh, let me present this show. This show is a recording of the Finding Hermes group. Wink, wink. Please join the Finding Hermes group because you get two extra exclusive shows a month. One is a Q&A and a group chat where I'm there to answer your questions and give you insights on show agnosticism. And the other one is a dedicated presentation, usually by me or another guest, where we grant uh, insights into ancient Gnosticism or modern Gnosticism. And these are very useful, whether it's for your praxis or your philosophical underpinnings. This one is a presentation by Adrian Smith, author of A Prison for Your Mind. It starts out as a case study of Canadian tyranny, if you would, but then Adrian brings it up to connect it to that wickedness in high places, that metaphysical, arconic power. So it's a very, like all other presentations, you'll find it very useful for your own life. And it is very eye-opening, very red pill suppository, if you would. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you can join the Finding Hermes program. And I hope you can keep supporting Aeon Byte. I also should mention that for all non-subs, you'll get the entire presentation with Adrian. But for all subs, you will get the Q&A and discussion we have afterwards, which is just as uh, electric for a very incendiary topic. So whether you're on Rockfin or uh, AB Prime, or you're listening on Audio and Red Circle or any other of the sub portals, you will get the Q&A and discussion afterward. So check it out. Enjoy. Okay, so the talk is going to be about mind control and how mind control is used to create a totalitarian society. I'm using the Freedom Convoy, the truckers' protest of January 2022, as a case study in the use of mind control to create a matrix-like false reality where the depiction of the truckers' convoy The way it was characterized is the complete opposite 
of what actually occurred uh, so that uh, they used uh, a, a various uh, ways of accomplishing this. Uh, so I'll just give a brief uh, recounting of how the Freedom Convoy got started, why it got started. It was as the result of the uh, pandemic and the border was closed completely at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. The truckers were given essential workers exemption because they were considered to be low risk in their isolated as they were in their cabs and because they wanted to keep uh, the flow of trade moving. That situation prevailed for more than a year and a half through the worst of the pandemic. Uh, then the border was opened uh, as long as you could prove that you had the Jabberwocky. And again, the truckers were given essential workers exemption. Fast forward to January of 2022, everything's starting to wind down and normalize. Restrictions are being lifted. Then Trudeau announces that this exemption, this essential workers exemption, was to be no more and that they would have to prove Jabberwocky or spend two weeks in a quarantine camp at their own expense, which essentially knocked them out of their profession if they couldn't prove what they needed to prove. Um, that's what triggered it. So a few of them got together and said, well, let's go up to Ottawa, have a little protest and negotiate the rationale behind something that seemed to be unreasonable. Uh, and uh, there was a, a Native American lady, Tamara Leach, who decided she'd do a GoFundMe to help them with a few of their expenses. Uh, she wanted to set it at $25,000, but her friend said, you're being way too conservative. Let's put it at $250,000. And she said, okay, that's too much. Let's go for $100,000. So they went for $100,000, and before long, they had $10 million dollars donated to them, mostly small donations of $50. So it started to snowball. And then uh, at the end of the day, I might add that by the time it was all over, they had $25 million. So they went to Ottawa. They came from all directions. They came from the East and from the West and from the North, um, from the Northwest Territories. At one point, the convoy coming from the west was a hundred kilometers long and took about an hour to pass you by so when it hit ottawa there were five thousand trucks and about fifteen thousand people before the protest even got started trudeau characterized them as terrorists so um he advised that all the businesses close up because they were coming to Ottawa to trash the city and to overthrow the government. And he fled the city and he had snipers on all the roofs and uh, it was very dramatic. Um, so I find that the, uh, as I go through this, I'm going to present the, the actual truth which is contained in a public order emergency commission that followed the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So the protest was ended by invocation of the Emergencies Act, which suspended all civil liberties, a wartime measure reserved for wartime situations or a national crisis. Um, it had never been invoked before. There was a three-month protest in 2020 where railway equipment was destroyed, junctions were destroyed, people were attacked, and a truck was set on fire with people in it. There was violence. But from the beginning, there was a negotiation. And it lasted for three months. The 
the economy was ruined because the railways couldn't run. And uh, this is the only protest that I'm aware of that that's ne never had any negotiation, never any willingness to negotiate with the truckers, with a bunch of blue collar workers descending on Ottawa with a grievance, a legitimate grievance, at least why wouldn't we talk to them? That would have been one way of ending it rather than invoking and suspending all civil liberties in the country and the freezing of the bank accounts. And subsequent to the invocation of the Emergencies Act, people were arrested and held as political prisoners. Uh, although they had never done anything wrong, they were never told that they were doing anything wrong during the, the protest. Um, So that's kind of the background to it. Um, there was a, a retired um, senior justice of the UK Supreme Court, Lord Sumption, who um, talked about totalitarianism. He says, if we confer despotic powers on governments to deal with perils which are an ordinary feature of human existence, we will end up doing it most or all of the time. So he saw in the lockdowns, he was an outspoken critic of lockdowns. He saw that as a pathway, a potential pathway to totalitarianism because he believed that people had the option to voluntarily lock themselves down if that's what they felt they needed to do. And uh, <clears throat> if they had done so, they would be no, make no difference to them if it was mandatory or not, because they were already locked down. Whereas those people who decided not to lock themselves down had voluntarily uh, undertaken the risk. And that was their business. So uh, that was his position on it. He says people willingly surrender their freedoms to some external threat. Sometimes real, usually real, but often exaggerated. And because of fear, they do not ask, does this action work? Or is it really necessary? Or is it worth it? Is, the, is it worth the cost of it? And fear is a big component of mind control, because when a person is afraid, they lose control of their critical faculties, and they don't think straight. And they don't observe the numerous contradictions in the narrative, which expose it for what it is. He also mentions that the common, under the common law, the common law presumes that each citizen is a rational actor, capable of making their own risk assessments. So in the philosophy of law, we often talk about the tyranny of the majority, where people just do what everyone else is doing. Uh, and for this, we have the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We also talk of the tyranny of the experts, um, and this is particularly appropriate for the tyranny that we're currently confronting because it is a technocratic, bureaucratic tyranny. And um, in the past, we've had for the tyranny of the experts, the jury system. The jury system is very old. At one time, it was a form of more direct democracy. But the way it works under the jury system is that the average citizen is enshrined as the basic unit of governance. Um, and the way it works is that one side will present um, a series of experts, and the other side will bring in their series of experts but under common law, under the jury system, under Magna Carta, it is the average citizen that ultimately decides. So that's how it is according to the common law. There's also in, in law something called the reasonable person test. So the 
judge will often step down from his lofty position and say, well, what would a reasonable person do in this situation? So always with reference to the average citizen. And uh, used to be called the reasonable man test. They used to call it the man on the clapnum omnibus. And this was something that came up um, during the uh, period in which Tamara Leach was imprisoned. She was in prison in solitary confinement without bail. Uh, she ended up in, uh, in front of a series of judges uh, who were really politically motivated. One of them was you know a liberal party worker one of them was a serious donor to the ruling party uh finally she ended up in front of a real judge and this judge said well what would a reasonable person think of what was going on here and they brought her in in leg shackles this grandmother this harmless person just as a way of humiliating her because you have to shuffle along. So we ordered um, the, the shackles to be removed. He released her from prison, but she spent, I guess, 40 days in prison before she landed in front of a real judge. So one of the um, primary, I gave this talk in Glastonbury, England, uh, it's a version of it. Uh, I think one of the things I used as a trope in that was the uh, folk tale by Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor Has No Clothes. It's the story of a very vain and egotistical, narcissistic emperor obsessed with his public image, who is deceived by two swindling weavers who promise to make him a magnificent suit of clothes with the proviso that only the wise, the competent, and the virtuous would be able to see it. <clears throat> but the foolish, the incompetent, and the deplorables would not be able to see it, with the result that the emperor was wandering around naked, and the, and the reaction in the population falls into three categories. The first category, uh, of people are wedded to the idea that every, everything is as it should be and that everything is normal and that the emperor is in his position because he deserves to be there because he loves us and he keeps us safe and he tells us the truth. But then they're confronted with this contradiction uh, that he's walking around naked and that creates what's known as cognitive dissonance. And that is the mental condition that results from looking at two things which contradict each other and believing them both at the same time. But in order to continue to believe the lie, you have to put what you just saw down a memory hole so it disappears and you don't actually see it. It's invisible to you. Now, uh, George Orwell described this as doublethink. Winston sank into the labyrinthine world of doublethink. To know and not to know, to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them, to use logic against logic. So here it gets interesting. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. So the emperor would say there's no such thing as truth. He would say there's no such thing as morality. It's all variable. It's all according to your perception. But who is the greatest moralizer of all? The one pointing the finger of accusation. Who does this most? 
So to repudiate mor morality while laying claim to it, <clears throat> to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy. The emperor had said very early on before his election that he favored the Chinese dictatorship, that it was the country that he admired most because of its basic dictatorship. And yet, so often he keeps saying that he's defending democracy, the rule of law, and that the truckers were a threat to democracy. So here we keep seeing these contradictions, and the contradictions create this cognitive dissonance in a certain segment of the population, and they don't see it. They don't see that they're being deluged with contradictions. And the contradictions serve a pur pur purpose of their own. They are a form of mind control. By exposing people to contradiction, there's a subliminal acceptance into the field of perception. And when that, is, that happens without resistance, the cri critical faculties are stunned. So a lot of mind control is shutting down the critical factor, factory through fear, through emotion, through contradiction. Uh, the setting, second category of person are those that see it. They see the contradictions, but they don't say anything. They keep their mouths shut because they don't want to be exposed to ridicule, to contempt, to ostracization. So they don't say anything. There's a famous experiment called the Ash Line Experiment. It uh, is uh, um, an experiment where there are a bunch of actors and one person who is not an actor. He is a, a test case or a test subject. So they're shown a bunch of lines of varying lengths and asked to say, well, which lines are the same length? And the actors are trained to always pick the wrong answers. And so at first, the test case would um, pick the right answer, no matter what anybody else said. But with repetition of it, after a while, about 75% of the test cases came around to just following what the majority was doing and giving deliberately wrong answers, even though they knew better. Um, then there's a third category of person uh, in a minority, in this case, a minority of one, a young lad yells out, the emperor has no clothes. And there's a stunned silence. People turn around, look at him, and then they start laughing. So there's a, a kind of a power in telling the truth. Uh, truth tellers can be in a minority, but have a disproportionate effect. They can have an effect, effect that's way beyond their numbers. And it has the effect of breaking the spell that's cast over the whole country. So I think it is time for me to introduce you to our emperor. Note the pious expression. Um, there is an incestuous relationship between religion and politics and empire. The emperor has adopted a religion, which I touched on earlier, a religion which says there is no such thing as truth, and there is no such thing as morality. It's all relative. Uh, this is a, a version of postmodernism, which is a corruption of it, a degradation of it, an inversion of it. So when 
empires adopt a religion, they do it to legitimize their reign. And in so doing, they turn it upside down. They invert it. They take the best aspects of it and drag it through the mud. And that's what's happening here. And already we're seeing a contradiction. Every day, a new set of clothes. Now this, I would call our emperor here the Sultan of Woke. Um, he is a representation of wokeness. And one of the chief tenets of wokeness is you do not dress up in the fashion of another culture if you're white. It's it's a bad no-no. It's called cultural appropriation. So he preaches cultural appropriation, but look what we see here. Another contradiction. And, you know, I know of a university professor at Yale who set, who sent out an email saying, wear any costume you want on Halloween. And the whole campus erupted. Uh, he was trying to negotiate with them. They got in a circle. They got hostile. They got, actually, they looked dangerous. This is a function of derangement, which is when people lose their minds which is when they lose their ability to reason and to think straight. That's what derangement is. And, uh, oh, they wanted warnings that he was going to appear in the dining room so that they could go to their safe place. Or it, eventually he lost his job. So here we have another contradiction. So I'm going to move on now to... Um, the characteristics and the strategies of the Demiurge. I call it Operation Mind Control. It's a PSYOP and perception management. Um, from the secret book of John, we know that um, the Demiurge was um, sought to control humanity or to dominate humanity through their psychological and perceptual functioning. It also says that human thinking was superior to theirs and that they had something that the Demiurge wanted, which was something called divinity, which was that connection with Sophia, which gave her the light, gave human beings the light of Sophia and that creative and imaginative function. So, um, The Debiurge operates through becoming a counterfeit. And the word in Greek is anti-maimon, pneuma, counterfeiting spirit, appearing to be one thing, but in reality something else. The word anti-maimon carries with it the meaning of uh, counter-mimicry, which is what I said about the inversion of a philosophy or a religion, making it mean something completely opposite to its highest and best expression, shall we say. So the Demiurge is a predatory mind parasite. And a, a parasite is a creature in nature which disguises itself as something beneficial to the host. And there's actually a parasite which disguises itself as the host's offspring. So the host protects and nurtures and cares for the parasite as though it were its own young. So again, we're talking about uh, how the mind parasite functions. It can appeal to us at an emotional level, appearing in different forms that cause us to love it and relate to it. It knows us better than we know ourselves. It knows how to reach us. And that's why we can, that's why we can get over some form of mind control and fall back into it. So I call it falling in love again. I was reminded of that song by Marlena Dietrich, you know, falling in love again. 
never wanted to. What am I to do? I can't help it. Uh, we see, I think, in the brainwashing process, uh, kind of black magic, trying to change a reality by cursing someone or hexing someone. Many centuries ago, there was a split in the magical tradition. Um, one side sought to use magic for personal development and evolution, and the other side sought to do it for uh, societal control. And uh, seeking whom he may devour. That's a verse from, I think, First Peter. The predator goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So there's an aspect here of psychological vulnerability that makes us susceptible and that it behooves us, therefore, to be aware of our vulnerability so that we can be on guard. Um, plays the victim when challenged. Now, this is something where blue-collar workers are on their way to Ottawa to enter into a negotiation, which should be of great interest to people on the left who claim, claim to challenge or claim to champion the cause of working people or average people. But he knows that he can't win the argument or he can't justify his position and therefore plays the victim, flees the city to a safe place. And this is something that plays itself out over and over again in this scenario. Um, The demiurge is a shapeshifter. The spider moves its nest. Uh, so it can change its outer appearance. And some people might think, well, okay, we're on the verge now of a, of a major change. And maybe it's all coming to an end. Um, so in the in the Wizard of Oz, when the Wicked Witch is dead, there's they start singing "Ding Dong, the Wicked Witch is dead." But we have to be cautious here because this change might be just the demiurge changing his appearance. Uh, I'm going to refer to something that was written by uh, Noam Chomsky, who did a lot of work on propaganda and mind control. And he says the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being re reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate. So it's like we're traveling down a channel with guardrails on either side. So it could be on the left one day and on the right another day, but it's not allowed to go outside certain predetermined limits. So on the other side of the guardrails are the, is the really secretive, really sensitive material. And in intelligence circles, that's known as, it can be known as a limited hangout. And that's when they will release information that seems to reveal their secrets. And they are revealing certain of their secrets but it's a limited hangout and it's to let people think that they found the answer so they won't dig any deeper. 
going back here to tactics, erase all forms of human identity, national identity, sexual identity, cultural identity, like Mao's cultural revolution, Mao wiped out Chinese culture, uh, Chinese dance, Chinese fashion, Chinese theater, Tai Chi. And uh, it's called wiping the slate clean. So you erase everything, create a blank slate, so you can bring in a brand new ruling order, a brand new social and economic and political system that's unlike anything that went before that will wipe out what I talked about, Magna Carta, the jury system, the elevation of the average person, all that gone. And one of the reasons they want to do away with countries, so there are no more countries, is because countries represent a layer of accountability that stands between the population and this new world order. So again, uh, moving along, no objective reality, all is perception, and there's no morality. I've already discussed that. Uh, the demiurge cannot initiate or create, but only imitate. Uh, the demiurge needs our permission and our cooperation. Now, all this is derived from the, the Gnostic texts. And part of the contradiction is sort of to announce themselves. They're always announcing themselves, let, letting us know what they're doing so that we give our permission to what's happening. This implies, too, that we are not victims in this scenario. We are um, complicit. Perhaps, that's a, perhaps that sounds a little harsh. Um, we are not victims, but we are certainly responsible. And it's an assumption of responsibility, an assumption of of uh, sovereignty that is needed and it's all that is needed if everyone was completely sovereign we got over all our psychological problems and it would be game over <clears throat> the demiurge operates in the shadows once revealed the power is, is ended. They succeed only because of deception. Bluff and bravado is a lot of it. No capacity for self-correction. They always double down on the same failed strategy, which means that ultimately they fail, and they will fail. They will crash and burn. The only question is how much pain between now and then their end is already baked in. Uh, the Demiurge prepares a dark room. Uh, in that room, there's no light. It's hermetically sealed against inconsistent incoming information. But if there was ever a little crack in the wall of this room, enough light would get into the room to, to dissipate the darkness, which Kind of, kind of goes along with a little truth telling has a major effect. Divide and conquer. We'll see that in the going from left to right, right to left along this channel. But it's the same military, industrial, security, pharmaceutical complex. No matter what happens, no matter who gets in power. And we'll see divide and conquer also in how the Demiurge handles <clears throat> the truckers and how he characterizes them. So I already referred to um, Noam Chomsky. Now I'm going to go on to um, the smear campaign, the, the hexing 
the cursing. He describes the truckers <clears throat> as a fringe minority with unacceptable views. How long do we tolerate these people? Well, it's the reason you tolerate them because they're protected by law, both international and domestic. Any form of medical intervention requires informed consent uh, and consent needs to be freely given. Consent that is under duress is no consent. They take up space. They don't believe in science. So all along, the emperor has been saying that his mandate was based on science. And I will revisit this as we move along. They take up space. That's a rather ominous thing to say. You know, what do you do with something that takes up space? So here we're seeing the divide and conquer, the marginalization of people, the division in a society where, okay, if you want to lock yourself down, lock down. If you want to get a, a jabberwocky, get one, you know. But if you don't, you don't. And those people have voluntarily undertaken a risk, and that's their business. These people are putting it all at risk. This is the first time that, uh, that I'm aware of that you take a vaccination to protect, protect somebody else. And that a small minority of people at the time of the, uh, that he made his mandate uh, against the truckers, there was about 10% of the population that was not jabberwockied. And uh, so what, you know, how are these people putting you at risk? You believe in the, the treatment. You think it's going to protect you. You were told that it was safe and effective, and you're wearing a mask. How is someone else putting you at risk? I mean, I don't get it. No one is safe until we're all safe. That's, a, some, that's something that was said by all of the actors in this, you know, by the emperor, by Klaus Schwab and Joe and Biden and a whole host of them, you know, they all kept saying the same thing. No one is safe until we're all safe. But it doesn't make any sense to me. He called them racist, misogynist, white supremacists. People of Ottawa harassed in their neighborhoods, confronted with the inherent violence of a swastika flying on a street corner, threatening acts of violence, inciting hatred, unacceptable. I, can't, I condemn such hateful and violent rhetoric in the strongest possible terms. They were terrorists. Now, the interesting thing is that um, the emperor is actually normally quite tolerant of terrorists. He was inter interviewed on the CBC <clears throat> about the Boston bomber. And he said, there is no question that this is happening to someone who feels completely excluded, someone who feels completely at war with innocence, at war with society. Trudeau finished by saying that it was important not to marginalize people, even further, who had already felt like they are enemies of society, rather than people who have hope for the future. So normally quite... And more than once, I might add, I don't know if I'm going to go into the, all of the examples, but why then are these people whom he has characterized as terrorists, who are not real terrorists, not worthy of even speaking to them? When he said of the Boston bomber, we must not marginalize this person. Destroying local business, that was destroyed because the emperor said there were terrorists coming to trash the city and recommended that they all close down when the convoy arrived and people saw that they were nice people, they were not violent, they were not terrorists, they were not racists. When all that became well-known, Many of those businesses opened and did a thriving business. The hotels were full that were open. The restaurants were full that were open. Stealing food from the homeless, well, no. 
actually there was so much food donated to the convoy that all the food banks were full and overflowing had to be donate, donated to communities outside of Ottawa all the way to Sudbury. Uh, pissing on the war memorial, no. Um, a lot of these people are veterans. There are video of them laying flowers and honoring the veterans. And guilty of deadly crimes, according to one of his ministers, Mendocino. Um, actually, nobody was arrested during the peaceful part of the protest before the invocation of the act. It was only after the act that arrest occurs. It was only uh, up until that point, no, no one did anything wrong. So terrorists are on their way. Trudeau flees the city. What had him so scared? Actually, she's, uh, she's really quite dangerous. She's like, she's like the little bunny on the Monty Python movie. Really quite vicious when you get it, when you confront her. I would suggest that this is the real face of the convoy. It was like family day. It was like a, a celebration. There was bouncy castles for the children. There was music. There was um, very prominent speakers coming out in support of them. Among them was um, the only living signatory to Canada's constitution. His name is Brian Petford. Uh, and also um, an ex-RCMP officer, Danny Bulford, who used to be in charge of Trudeau's personal protection, but resigned from the force. And uh, also uh, Trudeau's brother, who gave a speech saying that he loved his brother. Uh, but that his brother was reading from a script and that, and I agree with that completely because everything that he says is not him. Everything that he says is not original to him. Um, and I could go into this, but I don't want to take the time. Uh, all I can say is that there is absolutely nothing original. Nothing that is coming from the person. It's like something has taken over. A parasitic entity has taken over and operating him like a ventriloquist dummy. Um, says he loves his brother and he's spoken to his brother about him and told him to walk out, walk away, get out, go surfing. He remembers him as a fun-loving guy, fun-loving person. He counsels him to get out. He's tried to talk to him, but the emperor has said to him, I'm not allowed to talk about these things and has closed him off. So the emperor invokes a wartime measures act, the emergencies act. There was a predecessor act called the war measures act. The war measures act was invoked only three times, World War One, World War Two, and during a crisis in um, 1970, um, there was a series of bombings by the FLQ, the Front de la Liberation de Quebec, Front Liberation Front. They kidnapped people, they murdered people. And uh, the minutes uh, of the meeting between Trudeau Sr., Justin's dad, and his cabinet were brought to the 
Public Order Emergency Commission, they decided against invoking the War Measures Act, even though there was people being killed, kidnapped, bombings. But then the mayor of Montreal made an intervention. He said there was about to be a revolution and they were going to lose the province and that there were armed caches everywhere. But the initial reaction was no, which I found was very interesting. Uh, later on, the it was decided that it was an overreach. And that's why they brought in the Emergencies Act. They brought in the Emergencies Act to make it much more difficult to ever do it again. And so the act lays out what is necessary, what is absolutely necessary to invoke the act. There never was this kind of legislation before. It was all just the opinion of the prime minister and his cabinet. There must be threats to the security of Canada so serious as to be a national emergency that seriously endangers the lives, the health, or safety of Canadians. Threat or use of serious violence against persons or property occurring on or before the date of invocation. Uh, that's an important piece, on or before the date of invocation, because it was argued that although there was no violence, they were afraid it was going to turn into something. But the drafters of that legislation pre foresaw that and included that clause to make it important that the violence actually had occurred exceeds the capacity of a province to deal with. Couldn't be dealt with any other law. <clears throat> if the requirements are met, <clears throat> that if there is a lawful or statutory authority to act, if not, the prime minister would be acting illegally and things which he could get away with would suddenly become crimes. So it's very important that all these things be present in order to have a lawful authority to act. The act also required that there would be a public order emergency commission to look into the circumstances to make sure that it was kosher and it met the provisions. Um, So the Public Order Emergency Act lasted for six weeks of hearing 77 witnesses, 7,000 documents. I spent a long time looking through it all and I condensed it here to show you how different the perceived reality was from the actual reality it was a matrix-like dream world that was foisted on a population. Okay, to begin with, CSIS, Canadian Security and Intelligence Services, testified no credible evidence of a threat to national security. Bang. No credible threat. The act required that. <clears throat> Protesters were not told at any time that they were doing anything wrong. <clears throat> No one who was called to testify observed any violence or harassment. Witnesses were asked repeatedly, was there any actual violence? The answer was always no. No charges were laid or arrests for any reason. But what they did say was this. Okay, so... They were asked, uh, was there any violence? Oh, no, 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 there was no actual violence. Oh, no, there's nothing like that, no. Uh, no one was prepared to testify. <clears throat> so how can you base your decision, on, your decision on acts of violence? Well, they said, well, it was felt violence. It was microaggressions. It was... Uh, honking was violence. Economic hardship was violence. So this ability to reinvent language 
Um, How strangely will the tools of the tyrant pervert the plain meaning of words? Samuel Adams, 1776. And from Orwell, it's a beautiful thing, this destruction of language. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Syme, a specialist in newspeak, one of Orwell's characters. Police were advocating dialogue. Remember, it has to be a last resort. Everything has to be tried. <clears throat> there was no, a note produced by, uh, in the commission by, um, that was written by the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Friedland. She had written a note to the head of CSIS before the protest even started, urging him to label the terrorists, to label we need to characterize these people as terrorists, or her exact words. So here she is deliberately trying to misrepresent this protest. And you have to ask yourself, would you take medical advice from people like this? Would you take any kind of advice from people like this? She was asked, do you think they are terrorists? And she says, it's not for me to say. That's her exact words. Well, if it's not for her to say, why was she urging the head of CSIS to um, characterize them as terrorists? The contradiction again. An agreement was reached with the police to wind down the process, protest the day before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So what was happening here is that Trudeau was trying to provoke a violent reaction. He didn't get the reaction that he wanted. He saw his opportunity slipping away the day before, so he invoked it. As a last resort. Um, the RCMP commissioner testified that all options were not exist, exhausted. The police were well equipped to deal with it under existing laws. No medical justification for the cross-border mandate. And Trudeau admits this under oath. Trudeau testifies he never called the unvaccinated names. Well, it's all documented. Trudeau testified protests are allowed, but not if government policy is challenged. So it's okay to protest, but you're not allowed to challenge government policy. Um, there was a, a commissioner, Paul Rouleau, a justice of the Court of Appeals of Ontario. He was actually appointed by Trudeau to render an opinion and it it was pretty clear the fix was in. So he reports at the end of this that the very stringent requirements of the Emergencies Act were met and that Trudeau was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act, which shows you what happens when we lose the rule of law. If you do not have an acceptance of the clear meaning of words that they are that they mean something objectively, and you can make them mean whatever you want them to mean, then the truth is whatever you say it is, and we don't no longer have the rule of law, we have a dictatorship or we have a tyranny. Um, I was going to give some examples of what a real I'm running out of. So why do we care what uh, Trudeau does or thinks or says? Uh, he's just uh, not likely not to be around very much longer anyway. It's a reflection of his boss, Dr. Evil. I finally quit drinking for good, now I drink for evil. But he, of course, is jealous because someone else is vying for that title. His name is Klaus Schwab. The pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world, which is what um, 
Lord Sumption was saying about resetting. I will mention something that um, I was talking about moral values in law. The chief one there is um, impartiality. Uh, John Adams in uh, just before the revolution defended British soldiers who had fired on a crowd. They were being subjected to harassment. Things were being thrown at them. A club was thrown and hit a soldier on the head. A gun went off. And that was taken as a signal to start firing. He took on the case, even though he was an American patriot, and even though he lost all his friends and people turned against him. But he made a statement to the effect that facts are stubborn things. We are your single source of truth. You're not allowed to challenge government policy. We are your single source of truth. There's no such thing as truth. So what happens when there's no such thing as truth? We are your single source of truth. That is the operating statement of a cult. She went on to say that if you hear it from us, it's true. If you hear it from something outside of us, it's not true. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a political prisoner in the Soviet Union. He is credited by scholars as being responsible for the demise or the blackening of the name of Joseph Stalin. He wrote the Gulag Archipelago. It was smuggled outside of the Soviet Union. One man who stopped lying could bring down a tyranny. Now, this one is really important. It's something that was written by Vaclav Havel in a book called The Power of the Powerless. And it sort of goes along with what I was saying about the darkened room. It can seem like it's made of concrete, but only as long as it's sealed off completely. The crust presented by the life of lies is made of strange stuff. As long as it seals off hermetically the entire society, it appears to be made of stone. But the moment someone breaks through in one place, when one person cries, the emperor is naked. When a single person breaks the rules of the totalitarian game, everything suddenly appears in another light. And the whole crust seems to be made of a tissue on the point of tearing and disintegrating uncontrollably. So it's very important that censorship is put into place because when people start hearing alternatives, something which seemed indestructible seems now to be made of tissue paper. Counter strategies, stay connected with intuition and trust it. The feelings of discomfort that come with cognitive dissonance are your intuition talking to you. Parallel structures build a society outside of the one that's falling apart. Speak up and speak out. Rejection is a gift because it tells you who's your tribe and who isn't. Find your tribe. Hang out with biological humans of like mind. Disconnect from it. Pull the plug. Cut the ties which bind. Be creative. Find your purpose. Live according to your highest ideals of truth, beauty, justice. Preserve the culture, art, music, literature, poetry, humor. They're trying to wipe it out. Connect with the ancestors. There's a lot to be proud of in our own history, uh, the common law, the Magna Carta, the first written constitution in Europe. Integrate, integrate opposites, integrate modernism with postmodernism, integrate left with right. Don't get caught in that uh, divide and conquer. Question every narrative, observe the contradictions, hear all the alternatives. 
And this is one I like a lot. Rise and rise again until lambs become lions. Truth-telling is difficult, but with each truth-telling, it gets easier. At first, you're afraid of all the shit that's going to be coming your way by telling the truth. You tell the truth in increments, and you find out, well, that wasn't so bad after all. So you go back at it again, and you go back at it again, and you go back at it again, and eventually you become the lion. And therefore, not subject to the machinations of the demiurge. Um, I've been through all this in my life. I've been through category one, category two, category three. When I read, I should mention that Klaus Schwab has a program of education called the Young Leaders Program. Trudeau graduated from it. He is his star pupil. Um, when I read the entrance requirements for that from Klaus Schwab, I thought I was going back in time, uh, reliving an experience. Uh, so what we are seeing now on a civilization-wide basis, I experienced in the microcosm. And I'm not going to go into it any further because I'm too late. So I'm going to end it here because uh, if you want to find out about that, you can go to my website, not my website, but my blog site, prisonforthemind.blog. Uh, with that, I will conclude. Thank you for listening.